Welcome to a Leader's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Joel Gunn, and today I'm excited to have with me Kevin Miller. Kevin, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for dialing in all the way from Florida. Yeah, thanks, my friend. Good to be with you. Yeah, Kevin and I have known each other now uh, six, seven years, mm-hmm. and uh, first met when you uh, joined up with uh, C12 headquarters, and uh, you've been instrumental in a, a few key points in my uh, career as a coach, and I, and I want to thank you publicly for that. Uh, mm-hmm. you, and so, uh, really excited to have you on the show. You you always uh, uh, get people to thinking, and I, I love that about you. And and one of the things you said just before we went on the air, you enjoy being a mythbuster. And so, mm-hmm. hopefully, we get to bust a few leadership myths uh, somewhere during the process today. But uh, bring bring us up to speed. Uh, what are you doing these days? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Joel. Um, so a couple things. I always like to keep my plate full. Um, first is I'm the chief strategy officer for, for an agency called Amped, and we're a full-service strategic marketing agency. Really a lot of fun. I get to sit in that strategy seat for clients and, and help them figure out hard problems and where to go and how to scale to the next level. Um, just having a ton of fun with that. Transition to that after being a consultant for the last couple of years after leaving C12 and um, yeah, just having a lot of fun doing that. Um, then working with Pete Oaks and Mark Beebe on enterprise stewardship, high, high impact business operating system. I'm one of the coaches there for that system. It's been instrumental for me. Um, I actually used it in my, my other thing that I do, which is uh, leading a, a Christian student travel company. Hmm. Um, been doing that for the last year, and we've been incorporating some of the principles of high impact business into that and having a lot of fun doing that. So you know, I like to keep it interesting, keep it fresh and new, and um, I don't like to not be busy. So it's been a lot of fun, but it's a lot. Now, speaking of busy, I, th- I think most business leaders, uh, we at least accuse them of being too busy. Uh, what mm-hmm. What are your thoughts around the uh, productive, busy conversation? Yeah, so um, I think there's a difference between being busy and being influential and effective. And so I've just learned over the years that, you know, to be an effective leader is to surround yourself with people that do really good work and can be autonomous and lead on their own and not feeling like I have to be involved in every single thing and every single detail. Um, And that's kind of been, that's the only way I can manage everything that I'm doing is to make sure that I have the right people around me that are um, that are leaders in their own right. And, um, you know, just having trust, I have to have that trust and knowing that there's accountability, you know, but at the same time, it's knowing that they're going to do what they're supposed to do and they're going to rise to the expectations and together we're going to be able to grow some really cool stuff together. So, um, I'm not one of these. I learned a long time ago that I can't be a micromanager. I can't have my eyes on everything. There are going to be decisions that will be made that I'm not aware of, and I have to be okay with that. Um, and it just, it, like I said, it just really all comes down to trust. If you've got that trust in somebody else that they're going to make the right decisions and and you're aligned on things like values and you're aligned on things like how you see the world and um, how you see things like serving clients, and if the alignment is there up front, it establishes that level of trust where you don't feel like you have to be as involved and as busy. How do you, how do you pick teammates you can trust? No, uh, the old, you know, um, parable of, or the, uh, the kind of colloquialism of higher, slow, fire, fast is so true. It, it's all about the relationship up front, making sure you have some interesting conversations, some tough conversations, sometimes really transparent conversations up front to, to really understand, do, does this person see the world the same way I do? Hmm. Um, do they, are we aligned on core values? Do we, you know, do we even understand the difference between what's right and what's wrong? And then what that gray area is in between. Hmm. Um, I think if you, if you get to that point, um, that's probably 80% of the battle right there is knowing that, okay, this person, I, I trust their decision-making that it's going to be made with this filter and this lens um, which is the same lens I have. So I may not agree with every single decision they make or every move that they make or every, you know, tactical plan that they implement. But at least I know that we believe the same thing about what the end result should be. And so if we're still striving for excellence together, we're still striving for quality and the highest level of service and pouring into people and 
not seeing people as a not an asset on the balance sheet, but um, you know something that we've been called to pour into them and to um, to equip them and empower them. Um, then you typically see that at least we're all moving in the same direction. I want to come back to your comment on strive for excellence here in a minute, but before we go there. In, you talked about the inter interview process, having some tough conversations if needed about really trying to understand how they're wired and, and what their mm -hmm. default decision uh, techniques are. Have you found any questions or line of questioning that, that tends to serve you well in that? Yeah, I, l I love hearing stories. So I'll, I'll just ask about stories. Tell me stories about times that this happened or if somebody says, you know, I really believe this, um, then I say, how have you seen that work out or how have you seen that play out in your own leadership journey? How have you seen that play out poorly or well in other people's leadership journey? And, you know, so I think um, how they represent their character and, and the attributes of a successful leader, even if it, it's not them, but what do they admire in other leaders? Mm -hmm. Those are pretty telling conversations a lot mm -hmm. of the time where you kind of know, um, you know, so if they're, if they're saying that, uh, man, my, I, I model everything that I do after this one person. And you're looking at that leader and going, Ooh, gosh, that's <laughs> the exact opposite of what I would ever lead. Uh, mm -hmm. That's pretty telling as well, but loving to hear stories. I, I don't like asking the interview questions of like, you know, tell me your greatest strength and tell me your greatest weakness. Cause most of that stuff is not authentic. Mm -hmm. I just like to hear stories. And so as in a conversation, people are going to naturally bring up stories and, those to me are, are where you really get the crux of who they are as a leader. Have you ever used, and if, if so, have you ever found any value of getting them to tell stories about their past employer? Um, I typically don't. Um, cause I think that's a slippery slope. I, mm -hmm. I do find it interesting when, um, you know, if they come in a guns blazing with against their previous employer, mm -hmm. that's not a good look. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, because I know it's one side, right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really appreciate actually when people own the things that they're owning for themselves. And I think in any situation, you know, previous employer or not, if things didn't go well or, or there's always going to be challenges, right. There's always going to be, mm -hmm. um, things that don't go well. Who gets the ownership of those things? If the, mm -hmm. if the finger never points back, you know, at yourself, um, then you're delusional as a leader because <laughs> everybody has fault when things don't go well. Yeah. You, you mentioned just before we went on the air about mental toughness. How does that, how does that play into your interview process? Um, I, I think you asked really challenging upfront questions right up, right off the bat. And so their response to that, um, if you send them reeling and, you know, they don't know how to pull together a question or, or they, or they just start rambling or, or, you know, telling things that have nothing to do with that. Like the political approach, right? You ask a tough <laughs> question and they're like, let me sidestep that one. And <laughs> let me go over here and talk about this instead. Um, I want people around me that are willing to have tough conversations. I think, um, you know, healthy conflict is, is beautiful in what it creates and the results that it creates that friction if you're not inviting that friction into your life and into your leadership, um, how do you expect to, to get better? I I've always kind of lived by the motto that if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room, first mm -hmm. of all, mm -hmm. and two, the best idea should always win no matter where it comes from. And so that those are the kind of things I'm looking for when I'm talking to a new leader or looking at bringing a new leader onto the team is, are they willing to dig into those tough questions? Are they willing to challenge me? Uh, we have a mutual friend, um, Clarissa, and uh, when Clarissa started to work for me at C12, I interviewed her, and I remember she was coming on as a copywriter, and I love telling the story uh, because we, we gave writing prompts to several people, and we said, hey, you know, like, write, take this piece that we're giving to you that's that we that we have from maybe like 10 years ago or something and update it, and um I remember everybody else that we interviewed, they came back with some great writing and it was great writing and they did as best they could to update it. And I remember she came back and she was like, yeah, I don't know that I can rewrite this because this is so outdated. I would have to completely re-research this. I would have to bring new examples into it. So I just think this is an unfair assignment to even ask me to rewrite this 
you know, update this because it really just needs to be written from a fresh perspective. I was like, okay, you're hired <laughs> because now I know you're not going to just try to appease me. Right. Like right. you're, you're going to stand up for what's right and what's best and you're going to fight for excellence. And as long as I love conflict, as long as everybody in the room is fighting for excellence, if, mm-hmm. if somebody's fighting for ease or um, laziness or, or they're ego. fighting for ego, I'm not, I can't get on board with that. But if we're button heads because we're trying to get to a level of excellence, man, I'm, let's do it all day long. Hmm. That's great. You, you've mentioned the word excellence a few times. Why don't we, uh, why don't we go there for a minute? What is excellence for you? Why is it important? And, and how's that play out in the whole customer journey? Oh, yes. Um, so I, you know, because of my faith, um, being a Christian to me, I feel like God has called us to a completely different standard of excellence. We should be setting the bar for what excellent, good quality work looks like. And I think sometimes we compromise a bit on that and we use our faith as a bit of an excuse to compromise on excellence. And we say, oh, well, it's all about grace. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and you're a Christian. I remember telling a story where somebody was really upset with me because I wasn't referring business to them um, when I was a consultant. And they said, but Kevin, we're, we're Christians. Like we should be sending business to each other. I'm like, but I don't know your work. Like I have never seen your work. I don't know if it's good. I can't just blindly say, Oh, this guy's a Christian. You should use them. No, or do excellent work. If you do excellent work, then we don't have to worry about it. I'll, I'll endorse you all day long, but I don't know that. And just because we share a faith connection doesn't mean that I should be, you know, taking my brand as what I believe God has called us to be as Christians and potentially compromising that just because of our faith connection. Hmm. And so for me, you know, God has called us to, you know, if if we truly believe in our calling, our Ephesians calling of saying everything that we should do should be as if we're doing it for the Lord. Well, I'm not going to pay Jesus late. I'm not going to, I'm not going to deliver a subpar product to him, you know, and then say, but I'm a Christian, I follow you. So like, this should be okay. No, that that doesn't fly in his world. It doesn't fly in our world. Never in the Bible did he cheer um, mediocrity. And so, you know, my kind of personal mission in life, not only in my work, but just in life is just to eradicate mediocrity anytime that I get an opportunity to do so. And I felt like that was a really strong calling that he gave me several years back. And uh, it's been kind of a theme of my life. Um, in fact, when, when I left C12, my going away gift was a cooler that said eradicate mediocrity on the top. That's what the team gave to me. So it was kind of fun that I'm being recognized for being a little bit of a menace when it comes to pointing out when there's mediocrity. And I mentioned this to you, you know, it's so frustrating to me when somebody says, you know, that wasn't bad for a Christian whatever, right? Fill in the blank, movie, song, you know, company. That's so frustrating to me. How did we get to that point where we're not like, man, that company is so good or that person is so good. And then you find out that they're a Christian and that that's why they want to be good. Man, that's inspiring. That's attractive. That's magnetic. That's better than standing on a street corner and screaming somebody. You see that? happen mm-hmm. and you're drawn you want to go why are you that good mm-hmm. well here's yeah, why let's um, imagine a world where somebody goes man that's so good they must be christian mm, yes <laughs> yeah. that is a dream that is a dream that, that would be awesome um you know one of the things that that uh, especially people of faith historically have had not had a uh, a good track record of is admitting failures or or mm. how they overcame obstacles and uh, I think you do a great job at at sharing and articulating uh, those kinds of things for the for the viewing audience. What what would you say were some some uh, pivotal moments uh, that on the other side of a failure? Maybe a story that you have to share on that. Oh, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> is this is a three hour podcast. We can always bring you back. So <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Next field, just all failures the whole time. That'll be fun. Um, yeah, I think there's some there's some pivotal ones for sure. So I have a very eclectic background to how I arrived here and started off in ministry and worship ministry and then got into the business world and through mortgages and sales and marketing. And um, I tried my hand for a little while at being a restaurateur, um, mm-hmm. which that was that was probably my most visible failure in a lot of, a lot of ways. So had this really great vision of 
you know, when I was a kid, um, you know, going out to eat with my parents and, and bringing friends or having birthday parties at an Italian restaurant with the red and white checkered tables, right? And you, everybody sits down and we all have just a great meal and we get a chance to share as a family. And so I took some uh, recipes from my great aunt and, and her husband, Uncle Potsy, and we started this restaurant uh, where, where I built that environment. It was like 110 seats and we wanted to have a restaurant where people could bring their families and um, it was all about the experience and built the entire the entire um, concept around the experience of dining together as a family and um, started that restaurant right as the economy was crashing in 2008. So great mm -hmm. time to be in business. Um, and I think I was so stubborn at the time of my concept that I didn't I didn't adapt as I needed to to keep the doors open. So it's kind of like, you know, we talked about in C12, no margin, no mission. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if I, you know, have a restaurant, if nobody's there because I'm so stubborn on my model. And so at a time when people didn't want the expense of taking their family out to eat for big expensive meals and really they wanted quality food, but they were more open to having it delivered or, you know, going and picking it up. I was just so resistant to that. Cause I'm like, that's not my vision. That's not my vision. My vision is this place where you come and gather and because I was so resistant to those things, it, it really hurt the business. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so that agility, the adaptation of being a leader that says, okay, this may not be my original vision for what this looks like, but I can still have the same effect. I can still provide a quality experience for people, even if it's in their home or if we mm. bring it to them for their home, we can still create that um, quality dining experience. And I was just so you know myopic around, nope that's my vision. I'm not going to compromise. And eventually got to the point where I just had to close the doors because it, it just wasn't as viable as it needed to be in that time. So mm -hmm. you bring up a string a, of those, but you bring, you bring yeah. up an interesting thought though. Um, leaders often have to be steadfast, right? So that, mm -hmm. so what's actually a strength as a leader in this particular case worked against you. Mm. Yeah, I think, so I think it's, um, I think you've got to recognize when the circumstances are changing. So every, you know, it's kind of like Mike Tyson's quote of everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So, you know, when we were opening the restaurant, we didn't foresee that, you know, and especially in Florida, which is where the restaurant was at the time, South Florida, um, the market was just absolutely hammered and the local economy just did not really support mm -hmm. people going out to having the expense of, you know, of having these dinners out. So, I could have been steadfast, I think, and still adapted and been agile in how I delivered that quality mm -hmm. of experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I was so just stubborn around, I don't want to compromise on my vision uh, for this and the concept that, that it ended up, you know, can't have quality experiences if the doors are closed. And so it was a good lesson for me. Yeah. And, and to extrapolate from that a little bit, you, the core of your vision, it sounds like, was for families to have a great memorable experience. You, you further define that to it has to be in my restaurant, right? right. And then looking back, you, you're saying I was, too, uh, I was too fixed on my own concept of what a great experience would be instead of backing off a little bit from that and going, how do I create great experiences with my food, Right. And, right. and uh, so exactly. it's easier to look back and say, oh, I could have tweaked, st stayed true to my vision, uh, mm -hmm. but could have tweaked how uh, the how, not the why. And so uh, yeah, I think a lot of, of leaders, about that. yeah, I think a lot of leaders get caught up on that. If you got another one you want to share, that, that'd be awesome. Um, well, I, know, I think we the high, the high profile ones like Blockbuster and, yeah. you know, with the whole Netflix model and it was presented to them and they said no. And then look where that got them. So. You know, I think there's a difference, like you said, of being steadfast and being persistent and persevere through tough times and then just being stubborn and unwilling to compromise. Mm. Do you think, um, how do you think stubbornness plays into leadership uh, since we're on that track? Where do you, where do you see it manifesting as you've dealt with leaders over the years? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, young in, in my journey as a leader and, and, it rears its ugly, it rears its ugly head, you know, even further on in your journey is sometimes you feel like I'm a leader. I've got the experience. I've got the knowledge. I've, I've gained all of this to get where I am. Um, and sometimes, you know, that stubbornness can come out and it, it 
represents as ego, it represents as insecurity in us. And, you know, I think that's one of those things that's constantly a struggle for, I think, leaders is to what's the difference between being gritty and persistent and being stubborn. Mm. And so I think, I think it comes into, um, surrounding yourself with people who are willing to call out your blind spots. It's surrounding yourself with people who are willing to speak into your leadership. Um, you know, I've had, had people that worked for me or worked alongside of me that were bold enough to say, Hey, you just were really a jerk there and you didn't listen to anything that I just said and you didn't even value my opinion. Hmm. And I'm like, Oh, you're right. I should have. Um, hmm. and so, you know, we can be stubborn and, um, and, and think we're right, but it's, it's kind of like that old business parable of, you know, if you constantly are, um, telling people that you don't value them and you don't care about their opinion, they're not going to share it. Uh Um, and so you're going to end up being by yourself doing probably mediocre work because you're not allowing anybody around you to speak into the things that you're doing. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, this being a C12 chair, that the value of people that are willing to speak into your life and leadership with no skin in the game, other than that, that they want the best for you is powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the leaders that become stubborn, um, you know, are the ones that don't invite that into their life. And then typically the stubbornness just kind of leads to a track of, you know, disruption and distraction and disappointment and, you know, all the dis words, um, just are such a natural track for people that just, nope, my way is the only way. And I don't care about your opinion. I don't care about your input. I'm, I'm the one who knows what's best. That's just a dangerous, dangerous slope to be on. Let's say you find yourself on that slope, Kevin. Um, what's your advice to, to those people that as they're listening, they say, wow, I, I, I guess I'm kind of in that space. I might have been off-putting to my team and uh, created this barrier. What, what's your, what tools or, or thoughts do you have uh, to reverse that and, and start moving in the right direction? Yeah, so, I mean, without this turning into a full-on C12 commercial, it really is. Surround yourself with people who are willing to speak into your life. If, and even if you start with one. Right. Just invite one person that you trust who, you know, is going to shoot you straight and ask the question of, do you think I'm stubborn? Do you Mm -hmm. think I'm a jerk to some people? Do you think I diminish other people's opinions and then truly listen to their answer? Mm -hmm. And if they're a good friend and you are, they'll say, yeah, yeah, you kind of have that tendency. If they're a bad friend, they're going to go, no, man, you're awesome. Like everything you do touches that you touch turns to gold. Those are not the friends I want around me. I want the ones that are like, yeah, yeah, you're kind of a butthead. So uh, do something about it. Yeah. Um, Those are the ones I want around me. And I think if you just start with one and then find others that are willing to do that, um, I think, you know, you'll find very quickly those blind spots and you can work to correct them. How have you invited your team in, say, direct reports uh, into that circle? In, uh, probably the first place you need to go is a peer, you know, that you trust uh, or, or somebody, you know, maybe uh, further further up the, the uh, life path would be a great first place to go. But at some point you want to invite your team into that conversation. Maybe historically you've not been known for that. Uh, how, would, how would you recommend the, those leaders invite those initial conversations to happen? Yeah, I think first, don't expect it to happen overnight, right? Like you can't walk in on a Monday morning and go, hey, guys, I had a revelation over the weekend. Now I'm a nice guy that listens to feedback. Trust me, <laughs> right? Like they're going to say, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I think if there's an opportunity where somebody does test that out and, and they're willing to, uh, they have the psychological safety to point something out to you, celebrate it with the rest of the team. Uh, if they challenge you and they're right and you're wrong, tell everybody, say, look, Mm -hmm. man, I I just want to really celebrate, you know, Tom here because Tom walked into my office and said this, this, and this about my leadership. And he's a hundred percent right. And I really value Tom for, uh, for speaking into that with me. And so here's some changes I'm going to make, um, that hopefully you guys will see. 
and really being transparent to say um, it's not going to happen overnight. So if you find yourself down that road, don't say like I'm a change person and all of a sudden, you know, overnight I'm, I'm completely going to be a different leader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know for sure, you and I know that God can change our hearts, but sometimes the flesh still, you know, pops up in those conversations and um, there's a sanctification process that happens over time. Uh, but if you, if you celebrate it instead of diminish it. So if, if somebody steps up and challenges you in a, in a forum where, um, it's in front of others on the team and you shut them down and you know, basically make them feel, you know, this big, it probably is never going to happen again. Have you ever found apologies to also help change culture? If they're authentic, apology doesn't mean anything unless an action changes. So, sure. You know, if you find yourself apologizing for the same thing over and over again, but then nothing changes or they don't even see an effort for you to change the things that you're doing, Mm -hmm. um, then that apology is empty. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. we see that on the political stage all day long. It's like somebody says something really dumb and then there's like a manufactured apology on Monday morning and then they go right back to doing the same thing that they were doing before. Mm -hmm. So the apology means absolutely nothing uh, if it's not backed up by action. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You, um, just before the show, we were talking uh, momentarily about mental health. What, mm. what are your thoughts around that, especially in, in today's environment? We're post-COVID. A lot, of, a lot of people thought about quitting during COVID a couple mm. of years ago. Um, I ran across a statistic recently. I think it was around 73% of all executives uh, considered part of the great resignation, cons- considered that for themselves even mm-hmm. should, you know, did they have the mental health bandwidth to continue? And, uh, are you still seeing that in the marketplace? You think we're, we're trending out of that? Uh, what are your thoughts? No, I still see it. Burnout is real. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of expectations on a leader and there's not a lot of safe places to go to talk about the things that you want to talk about. You know, the, the phrase that's lonely at the top is so true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I experienced that even being a consultant for for the last two years before, you know, um, joining the AMPT team, uh, it was lonely out there. And, you know, you, you can't really, there's not a lot of places or people that you can talk to about the things that you're struggling with. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for me, I think, you know, burnout, I've, I've hit burnout several times in, in my career. And the thing is, you know, you don't know that you're burning out until sometimes I think it can be too late. And I remember just literally thinking to myself, as I'm acting a certain way or saying things to people in the midst of burnout and thinking to myself in my head, this is not you. This is Mm. not who you are. And I couldn't help myself. Like real Mm. burnout, I think you get to a point where you don't even, like it's almost like an out-of-body experience. You're like, man, you're really being a jerk. And you're like, well, the you you're talking to is me. Like, um you can't help it because you become short with everybody and you, you know, you, the creativity, um, the imagination, the innovation and, and intuition just gets stripped out of you as a person and a leader and you become a shell of who you were before. And I think, and I've, I've, I've coached several people through burnout uh, leaders and friends that I've recognized the symptoms in them. And I think the dangerous part is, and I remember consciously having this thought that I'm afraid I'm almost about to become this person permanently. Mm. And I think there is a, a break point where that can happen, where that becomes your new personality and your new attributes. And that is who you become, especially if you don't take steps to remedy that burnout. Mm. And I think again, you know, I, I, I didn't have enough people around me that recognized the symptoms of burnout to be able to point it out and say to me, are you all right? (laughs) How are things going? Like, and and they may have like criticized or given input or feedback, but they didn't say, let me help you out of it. I'm going to, I'm going to help you out of this season of burnout and here are the steps we're going to do. And sometimes that probably would take a little bit of a smack in the face or a, you know, swift punch to the gut and say, Hey, snap out of it. This is not you. And, um, <clears throat> I think if you have enough people around you who are, are seeing, they see who you were and now they see what you're becoming and they recognize the symptoms and are willing to call it out. That's, 
extremely valuable people to have around you because they will recognize those symptoms way before you do. Hmm. You, you said you've been able to walk alongside a, a few folks through the burnout season. Was there any a particular process or steps that that you found have been helpful to get them back into a, a normal mindset? Well, I, I think a lot of it is just symptom identification for them. Of There's plenty of surveys and data and information around burnout, what it looks like. And it's kind of like typing your symptoms into WebMD and, you know, like it spits out, yep, you're a burnout. Hmm. Um, I think that was for me as I, I remember literally reading a page, a one pager about the symptoms of burnout. And it had all these little graphics. And as I was reading through the each one of those graphics, I'm like, yeah, yep. Yeah, I do that too. Oh gosh, yeah, that's totally me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I was like, oh, wow. So maybe I'm in burnout. I don't know what that means, but I got to get out of this. How do I get hmm. out of this? Hmm. And so really symptom identification, asking those friends, are you experiencing that you're just short with people and you don't even know why you're short with people? Do you, do you wake up in the morning dreading you know, the day and, and meeting with people? Do you, do you get an email from somebody and immediately think the worst? Um, do you, do you, um, do you hear yourself acting in a certain way and don't know how to get out of that? Like just mm. asking those questions to people and them going, yeah, yeah, I do feel that. And then saying, okay, well, man, you, you're probably in burnout. We need to, we need to take some steps to fix this. And so again, it's, it's one of those things. It's not an overnight process to get out of burnout, mm -hmm. but it is, it does take an intentionality and a recognition of that. Okay. I am, I'm going to admit that I am now I got to fix it because mm -hmm. the, the road that it leads to is a very dangerous road and a very scary road that I think, you know, we've seen the statistics of what can happen if you don't reverse course. Um, and, and that's just not, that's not healthy. That's not, it's not good. <laughs> it's not, it's not glorifying, especially if you're a person of faith, it's, it's not glorifying to um, the one who created us for relationship and um, accountability. Hmm. Once somebody realizes they're in burnout, have you found any common uh, kind of next steps that, that tend to work? Uh, you know, I don't, I know neither one of us want to be prescriptive here, but yeah, if somebody's going, man, you know, as I'm listening to Kevin, I'm, I'm starting to think maybe I am in burnout. Uh, so they, they need to Google, you know, burnout symptoms, verified, you know, with their spouse or some, uh, some close uh, peers, uh, friends that, Hey, you know, I was reading this thing and I'm thinking it might be me. Are you seeing these in me? Let's say everybody says, yes, you know, you're definitely in burnout either in your own journey or as you've journeyed with some other folks, kind of what was the, what those next steps tend to look like? Mm. Great question. So I, um, you may have remembered this video, but Laura Casey Isaacson, um, who's a C12 member in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, I can't remember exactly somewhere in North Carolina. Um, we did a video on her and um, went to her house and we were filming this video and, and hearing her story around how she decided to, um, create some change in her life because she was experiencing some of that burnout as a leader and didn't know where to put her priorities. And she's a gardener. And I remember she so perfectly told this story and it just, it hit me in such an impactful way. She said, you know, it's easy when you're a gardener to prune the brown branches, the things that are withering and not producing fruit. Like it's easy to see those, right? You, mm -hmm. you look at your garden, you go, Ooh, that's, that's ugly. I got to cut that out of my life or cut that off of the bush jumping too far forward into the metaphor here. And then, you know, you've got, she would say it's easy to take care and preserve and protect the things that are producing beautiful fruit or beautiful flowers. She said that the challenge is always the green branch because mm. you see it's a green branch and it's, it's still growing, but there's not a lot of fruit being produced from that. And I remember thinking like, that is so profound because mm. I have filled my life as a leader over the years with a lot of green branches that weren't producing fruit. Mm. And I think the first step to getting out of burnout is identifying the brown branches are easy. We can cut mm -hmm. those out, but mm -hmm. what are the green branches in your life that you're investing time and energy and mental space to that 
are not producing fruit. And then ask, is there somebody else that could be doing this? Hmm. A lot of times there, there is somebody Mm -hmm. else that could be doing this, Mm -hmm. um, that could produce fruit. And then I think, you know, identifying how do I, what are the things in my life that are the priorities for me? What do I absolutely have to do that I am the one that's called to do? And what are the things that I can share with others? And what are the things that I just need to cut and move on from? And so, you know, it's funny, I, we did this in our house for a long time and we still do it, but we have a rule in our house. If we haven't used it for a year, it either gets sold or donated. Hmm. And it's prevented a lot of clutter for us as a, as a, as a family, but applying that same rule in your life of, you know, like, where are the things in my life that I'm not, that I'm not contributing to and are not contributing to my leadership or, um, contributing to my growth and, let's one find somebody else that can do those things for us. Or if not, then let's figure out how do we just eliminate those things from our life. So I think as a leader, if you can identify those things or have somebody help you identify those things in your life, then you have to take those hard steps sometimes of saying no to those things. And that's, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to Mm -hmm. say no to things that you feel like, Oh, if I just give it just a little more effort (laughs) or a little more time, it's just going to, you know, Usually it doesn't, especially if you, if you're already in burnout, it almost has to be like, you got to go through with a, you know, with one of those shearing saws and just cut a lot of things out at once because, um, that's probably what's contributing to some of the burnout. Hmm. In your experience, uh, personally, or as, as you've walked with others, uh, how often is the spouse, uh, a good point of reference for this burnout conversation? Mine is a great one. I, I can't speak for others, but my Beth is really good at uh, pointing out when I'm being a butthead and she's really good at pointing out, you know, the blind spots for me. And I appreciate that about her. It's, um, you know, we're definitely uh, complimentary in that way. Um, not with an I, but uh, with an E where, she, you know, she's, she's the one that's saying, ah, I think you, you're getting close again to burnout. And she mm-hmm. recognized it in me and pointed it out to me, but, you know, I think it, it it's tough sometimes with the spouse because, um, you know, I think I think sometimes there's just a challenge in um, relying on them so much for them to point out things that uh, maybe you're not even seeing in yourself. And because Beth wasn't sitting by my side every day at work or with my team or in my leadership positions, you know, it's hard for her to see what I'm like there. I'm sure she could make the translation to if you're like that here, you're probably like that there. Um, But she's very good at asking me questions of what's going on. This isn't like you. This doesn't seem like you. You don't seem like yourself. How come you're so short with others? So, um, you know, I value just our relationship and how she's able to point those things out to me which gives me an indicator, but I think you still have to surround yourself with others in your life that are seeing you in other contexts mm-hmm. who are then able to call you out in those contexts. So I, you know, I've heard a couple of people, I don't want to break any confidence, but some of the people were, you know, at church, they were a leader. Everybody looked up to them. They were, everybody thought, wow, they're amazing. They must have it all together. They're just, they just seem like the perfect family. They, you know, they're the perfect leader. I bet it's so great to work for them. And then, you know, they're churning through people on their team um, like crazy because they what they were at church was not what they were in their work environment. And I imagine that translates to family as well, where, you know, you, if you have one place that you're putting all your energy into putting on a facade, that's draining in the other areas too. And, um, you know, so if, if you ask the people that were around that person at church, to say, what kind of person are they? They're going to say, they're amazing. They're awesome. Mm. So if that's Mm. your only feedback loop, um, you're not going to call it out, but you know, they, this person actually had some people on their team at work that said, um, this is not the right way to lead us. This is not, these are the things that are really challenging for us with you as a leader. Um, Mm. so it's, it's making sure that you have a diverse mix of people around you in different circles of influence that, um, you know, can call those things out in you. That's great. You, uh, you spend a lot of time, uh, interacting with CEOs, um, and, and business executives. 
what what concerns or encouragement uh, you know good or bad what do you what do you see uh, the rest of this year looking like uh, what are you hearing out there in, in the marketplace yeah I mean it's I, I think there's a bit of uncertainty right we're in just kind of a, a season of volatility and uncertainty um, it's a true VUCA environment out there people are concerned I think um, you know, we're in, a, in an interesting time where we've got multiple generations that are still in the workplace together, and all of them have different ways that they, you know, think and see the world and operate and have different, um, you know, views on, on work and what that means and purpose and mission. Um, so it's, it's a fun challenge because, you know, it's, there's definitely a diversity in thought and opinion and worldview and, um, but I think CEOs that I talk to right now, the big thing that I keep hearing is they want to know that the things that they're doing are the right things. Hmm. And so whether it's like for me, from a marketing perspective or growth or, you know, I, I talk to my friends who are in the, the cultural, you know, like organizational development business and consulting, it's the same theme. It's like, do we have the right culture? Are we doing the right marketing things? Are we doing the right growth strategies? Do we have the right you know, are we doing the right things from a financial perspective to prepare us for whatever comes down the road? I think, you know, post-COVID, things just got so disrupted and people were caught really, you know, kind of out in the open on a lot of things uh, when that came along. And so I think it's really, it's allowed leaders to start considering that, okay, we may have a plan A in place, but we probably need to have a B and it might be nice to have a C in there as well, um, just in case things you know start to go go a different way so i think there's been a a huge um shift to thinking about strategy and tactics and how those two things relate to each other um you know i've seen that as significantly in, in consulting and in the marketing side of people want to make sure that they're doing the right things and not just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and hoping something sticks um but being more strategic in how they approach things and then measuring everything. So, you know, people want to know, like, what is the return on this? Am I getting value out of this? Is this, is this helping us move the needle forward in the right way? So I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of concern around, is this what we should be doing? I hear that question a lot from CEOs. Is this the right thing for us to be doing right now in this season? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can, I, I consider you a marketing guru. Um, Oh, thank what, you. what, what would you say to business leaders right now, um, from a marketing perspective? Is it a, is it a time to cut the marketing budget, the consulting budget, the training budget, uh, which is typically the three things uh, we see cut uh, traditionally in in tough times? Mm -hmm. uh, what are your What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I. You know, I, I definitely don't agree with the approach of just turning off marketing. So I've used this analogy in the past, you know, being a musician, playing guitar, you have these old tube amplifiers, right? Mm -hmm. And these tube amplifiers, when you flip them on, they take a long time to warm up to where you really get the good sound coming out of that amplifier. The electric amplifiers that are that we have today, you flip them on, they're ready to go right away. But the sound is not quite as good as those old tube, you know, look like a light bulb heating up inside. Mm -hmm. I view marketing the same way as uh, really in any growth strategy, the same way as if you turn it completely off and let it cool down, it takes a lot longer to get it ramped back up when you, when you're ready to turn it back on. Mm. So I do believe there are things that um, are superfluous that you probably, a lot of people are doing that you don't need to do. Um, and, and you know, like even in our agency, one of the things we do to kick off every engagement is do an assessment of everything that people are doing. And we found significantly with just about every client we've worked with that there are some things that they shouldn't be doing, but there are probably some other things they should be doing that they're not doing. And so having somebody, whether a consultant or somebody coming in, it's a fractional CFO or a, a, a consultant coming in and saying, hey, you should be doing these things from a financial perspective, an organizational perspective. Um, I think having having an assessment of are these the right things we should be doing right now with the human and financial resources we have available is really helpful in understanding um, that you're going to get more bang for your buck to use an outdated phrase with the things that you're doing. Um, and so I, I think 
I would, I would not tell anybody to cut anything completely um, because in this market, it just immediately puts you behind the eight ball when you're ready to start turning things back on. But I think, you know, there are a lot of things that people can do that. And I know this sounds crazy coming from a marketer, but hang with me here. There are things you can do from a marketing perspective that don't cost anything. And so, um, you know, we, we even include in every strategy we build for a client a couple of things that they don't even have to pay us to do, but they're just the right things to do from a marketing perspective. Um, so I think getting people that you trust that, you know, are going to tell you with transparency and authenticity, here are the things that you should be doing and here are the things you shouldn't be doing, and then helping you prioritize when to do those things. Uh, mm -hmm. I would never say to, to get rid of that. You should always have that around you. I remember when I was in college working on one of my degrees, I uh, took a, a marketing class, I believe it was, um, and there was a textbook uh, case study in there of a, a little-known sports company that didn't really have much recognition, brand recognition, here in the U.S., uh, and then in the oil crisis in the late 70s, uh, all their, all the well, pretty much everybody cut their marketing budget, right? Their training budget and every mm -hmm. other budget just because the economy was so bad. Um, this particular company decided to 7X their spending on on marketing. And we now know them today as the giant sports brand, Nike. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they still to this day, from what I understand, feel like that was a, a pivotal moment for them in in their world history of uh taking over the the marketplace mm -hmm. and uh i don't know if you've seen similar stories uh or mm -hmm. would agree or disagree with that but thought i'd bring that into the conversation yeah even even with our student travel company you know as you can imagine covid um pretty much just decimated the the business because we went from you know, having all of these trips on the books to take these kids to all these cool locations and destinations to learn. And within a matter of about three weeks, it was none. Can't go anywhere. Um, so, you know, instead of retreating and letting things settle out, um, you know, the leadership, we made the decision to invest more into growing the brand and growing the marketing and it's paid off dividends for us. But we've seen that significantly with, with other companies as well where it's kind of like the, you know, the real estate investors and you ask them what's the best time to buy. And they say, when the market's down, what's the best time for an, a stock market investor to invest? It's when, you know, things hit the floor. Um, it's kind of the same thing in marketing is if, if other people are retreating because of uncertainty or the volatility, that is an opportunity for you to jump ahead and, and hit the accelerator button. Um, because it's just, you know, marketing is just in sales and, you know, name the discipline in business. If you, if you are doing more than the competition in that space and they're all going backwards and you're going forward, then that's how you gain competitive advantage, capture market share and expand into different markets and enter new verticals. And it is the land of opportunity. So, mm. um, I, I just, you know, when people say, oh, we're going to cut back on marketing. Um, sometimes I just feel like that's a, that's just setting the reset button and going, not back to zero, but even going backwards a little bit. Mm. Any, uh, any recommendations, you know, the viewing audience here ranges from, you know, solopreneurs to leaders of larger companies, any recommendations for those smaller businesses? You said uh, occasionally you, uh, when you do an engagement, you'll throw in a few things they could do for free. Yeah. <clears throat> is there, is there a general one or direction that people could go research on their own? Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, customer marketing, customer advocacy marketing, however, whatever the term is that you want to use it, that shifts sometimes in the marketing vernacular, but establishing a really great feedback loop with your customers and understanding from the, identifying people in your customer group that are willing to help you solve problems. So the one thing that I always advise to double down on when the marketing funds aren't there or the, or the sales are slow is go to your customers. They will they will help you solve problems if you ask them. And there is a group of people in every customer group that um, sharing a sense of ownership around how do we solve these things and getting their insight and their feedback is extremely valuable in shaping how you adapt product, how you adapt the way you go to market, how you adapt your messaging. And it doesn't cost a lot of money 
for you to set up those feedback loops to get your customers in in that with you. It's amazing. I've seen this happen so many times with companies where and brands where they get their customers involved and they're helping them literally figure out how to get more customers, how to capture more market share, how to fix issues in their company, operational issues that they would have never discovered on their own. Um, and, you know, it's not every customer is going to be that for you, but there is a significant group of customers in every company that is willing to carve out time to help you solve it. And, um, you know, it's kind of the whole five love languages, love bank thing. If you're in, if you're depositing a lot of positives in the love bank with your customers, mm -hmm. you can afford a few withdrawals and they'll actually help you figure out how to solve it. That's the crazy thing that I've seen happen in companies is you get your customers involved and, and you may even just fall flat on your face and serving that customer. But if you recognize it and say, and how do we fix this in the future? You can help us fix this. What should we do better in the future? What should we, how should we fix this problem? They actually become even more of a raving fan, even though mm -hmm. you wronged them, they become more of a raving fan because you, you have shown a willingness that you're willing to admit when it went wrong and you want to fix it and you need their help to get there. It's mm -hmm. amazing when you take that posture and approach, but I've seen so many companies go the opposite way where things get tight and they cut anything that has to do with looping the customers in and they see the customers as a problem to solve instead of a way to solve their problems. Mm. And just that shift in mindset in a company, it doesn't take a huge budget, but the effect on both revenue and operations and product quality uh, can be astronomical. Hmm. And it, it's just a huge return on investment. So any company, small solopreneur, all the way up to you know an enterprise hmm. um, can benefit from establishing a really solid customer feedback loop and and um, and using the insights you gain from that to make changes in your company. That's great. That's great. Well, Kevin, uh, I've, we've got a lot still to talk about, so I'll have to have you back on the podcast some other time. Yeah, but I would love it. I, I do want to uh, be aware of yours and the viewers' time. So thank you so much for coming out today and, uh, and give me some, some, uh, really valuable, actionable stuff, which I, I totally expected and you delivered like you always do. So really awesome. appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. It's good to be with you, man. Yeah. It's been an honor. Talk to you soon.